Hey guys, Andy Greenwald here. Channel 33 is brought to you by SeatGeek. That's our presenting sponsor. Do you know that? It's also my favorite way to buy and sell tickets to sporting events, concerts, public forums, I don't know, whatever else you want to go to that's outside of your home. With the SeatGeek mobile app, you can quickly and easily buy tickets. It's just two taps. You got your tickets delivered straight to your phone and you can enter the event. Again, the event of your choosing. If you can't make it to the event, SeatGeek now lets you transfer tickets to your friends, post your tickets for sale, and it's all from your phone. It's super easy. As a special offer to Channel 33 listeners, SeatGeek is giving $20 back off your first purchase with the code wait for it, BSPN. So to get $20 back on your first SeatGeek purchase, just download the SeatGeek app, do it today, and enter the code BSPN. You're listening to the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Hello, my name is Andy Greenwald. This is my podcast. The podcast is exclusively to be found on Channel 33, which is proudly part of the Bill Simmons Podcast Network. You can find Channel 33 and to subscribe on iTunes. What, do you, what else do you need? You need your, your, your Stitchers, your SoundClouds. You got it all. I also want to thank the fantastic Scottish band Churches, that's Churches with a V, for making my wonderful theme music. Great show today. We had Mike Schur. Mike Schur is formerly executive producer of The Office. He was the co-creator and showrunner for seven wonderful seasons of Parks and Recreation. He is the co-creator of Fox's Brooklyn Nine-Nine, a very funny show. And this fall on NBC, his latest show called Good Place, starring Ted Danson and Kristen Bell, will premiere. Uh, It was great to talk to Mike about his perspective on TV, about peak TV, about his experience running Parks and Recreation, about why doing comedy about good people is challenging and worth doing, and most of all, whether I would be able to make him cry. I'm not going to spoil it. You'll just have to listen for yourself from my conversation with Mike Scher. I noticed that the last time. Yeah. It was, like a, it was just a fade in. It was just a cool, gentle... Yeah, it was like it was like you were, you were in a cafe and you just happened to be walking by and like, oh, there's Andy talking with his buddy. Let me listen in. <laughs> Who's scatting over there? Hey! <laughs> this is Jazzman Greenwald. Um... It is Jasmine Greenwald. I'm here with Mike Sure. I will do an official intro to you after you've left. Sure. So I can say nice things and, you know, Great. I wouldn't want it to go to your head. I want it to be one of those. Can we do the slow, the like casual fade in though? I yeah, think I, think we, I think we've done it. Oh, that's what we did. That's yeah, what you missed going it. to happen. People are listening now. <laughs> um, I, but, you know, I'm not just mentioning the Marin thing because uh, we're doing it. But I did want to begin by saying, you mentioned Marin in the email you sent me. Yes, because well, I, I listened to your Damon Lindelhoff interview, Yeah, which, which I nice loved. Of Thank you. And, and uh, I, it was very confessional in the way that Damon Lindelhoff is often very confessional. Yes. But I, I feel like it also positioned you yeah. maybe as the guy who deals with TV, culture, movies, and so forth, who when people are feeling personal or professional yeah. or vulnerable maybe they show up on your couch and maybe tears are shed that's what i want for you i first of all thank you that's why i'm here that's what <laughs> i want for me too but that puts a lot of pressure on you because you have to cry <laughs> that's fine are you a crier i have is plenty that, to cry about are, are you naturally a crier or am i gonna have to work for it i am well it depends in in context uh-huh. uh for example saw star wars episode seven colon the force awakens yeah. with my seven-year-old son yeah the moment the uh, like Lucasfilm graphic showed up at the beginning, I started crying, <laughs> and and he didn't notice, which was good. 
Um, Did he really I, not, or was he just being like? No, he because he was absorbed and right. he was excited to see the movie. Cried like twelve times during the movie, mostly yeah. not at the movie. Although I liked the movie a great deal, mostly because I was there with my son and was having flashbacky kind of contextual feelings, contextual feelings, right? Know? And at some level, also crying because I found the film to be of a very generally very high quality and that was also a huge relief and weight off my shoulders that's a very specific kind of crying. yes that's that a is, nerd yeah. nervousness crying it is yeah um it's a different kind of crying from the crying i did after i saw the phantom menace in new york in 1999 i saw that i, I think i talked about this on a podcast i did with with chris ryan but i, I that was my birthday i oh. saw that movie that was my birthday oh, gift no. all my friends we got together and we drove to um seekonk massachusetts because we were just gra- we were graduating from college that, that sure. week it was a triumphant time <laughs> and then you go and you find out like the space knights of your youth were just tax collectors <laughs> in, a, in an evil muppet verse and that the, and that the force is a virus that can be theoretically given to someone else through a blood transfusion yes and that just as light travels through the universe so do racial stereotypes <laughs> to any corner of the galaxy (laughs) yeah that was a bummer so i so in certain contexts i would say yes i am a crier Uh um i at least uh, i feel like i have no problem crying (laughs) and so we'll see what like this is a test for you consider this to be a test this is a if you can get me to shed tears then you will have officially taken over that mantle i want to say and i feel like i say this with love and i hope he hears it as such that i feel like being with with damon like all i had to do was bring the net like i had to bring the microphone you know what i mean like he was ready to share some things yeah i should have stunted this room like i should have brought in your child or something that's right (laughs) (laughs) just hung photos like look who's here kids around yeah well damon i I will say this and we don't have to make this whole thing about damon but damon is a fairly new friend of mine okay and the reason he is a new friend of mine is because i watched the leftovers season one yeah and i thought to myself this person who I've known about for uh, a long time now is responsible for what I consider to be two now, two of the yeah. greatest dramas of the modern day. And yeah. I know that you were less a fan of season one than season two. But I'm on the board now. But now you're on board, which is great. But I loved season one. I yeah. thought season one was remarkable and amazing. And so I was like, what do I know about Damon Lindelhoff? He created or co-created Lost. He has now done this show, which is like making me feel things I've never felt before while watching television. That that I agreed with even in the first season. Right. And by the way, he has a very interesting relationship with the public and the media because I had followed from afar Mm -hmm. his kind of way of dealing with the end of Lost and then with his sort of confessional period. And then with his very, to me, very interesting decision to sort of say, like, I'm done. I'm not going to play this role anymore i don't like it it doesn't make me feel good which is the was sort of confessional and honest in a way that tv writers are almost never confessional and honest at least in public and so i was like i want to meet this guy and i called my agent and said i want to be set up on a play date with damon lindelhoff like (laughs) that's so cute that agents do that and and then it turned out he had also at least consumed some of the things that i had written yeah he was either genuinely a fan of them or was being very polite. And he said, I would love to meet you for lunch. And we had lunch and we've be- now become friends. And so I was very interested to listen to him on your show. That's very nice. But it also does lead to, uh, I think, a question that I had anyway, which is that there does seem to be, this was an arranged marriage or an arranged date. True. But the culture, like the the, the people who have, in the same way that there are only a certain number of people who have walked on the moon or played professional sports at a certain level, 
yes, there are 500 shows on TV this year, and that's something we should talk about at some point. Yeah. But the the people who have who have run shows is relatively small group, and you have had experiences that not many people can relate to in terms of pressure and and uh, creation and 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 pain, birthing pains, and everything. <laughs> right. Um, so I have found that that there are surprising connections, like people that I know who run one show that I wouldn't ever associate with another, they'll get a drink and just vent because they understand each other. Have you found that to be the case generally? Generally speaking, yes. I would also preface um, any discussion about this by saying that the like these are not actual problems <laughs> that showrunners have, right? They're not actual problems. Sure. They're, they're, they're show business problems. And that isn't to say they're not real, they are real. There is a certain amount of just basic job pressure. There's yeah. budgetary pressure. You are responsible for a goodly amount of money that a large company has given to you and trusted to you. Usually, by the way, at a time when you have shouldn't be trusted with that much money. Like, you know, the average budget of a show is in the two to three million dollar per episode range. Yeah, that's absurd. If you're making twenty two of them, you can quickly it adds up pretty quickly. And then if you're making multiple seasons of that many episodes that cost that much money, most of the people who are given the job are completely ill-equipped to handle that kind of, yes. like, you don't know what a budget well, is and you don't know how to manage it. And so... Well, it's a completely different skill set. I mean, that's being, right. being a writer is a, a very is a skill set. Right. And it's tough to develop and it, not everyone can do it. Being a manager of people is one thing. Being a manager of a budget is a whole other thing. That's right. And, and there is a certain aspect of the job, which is that you train your whole life to be a uh, brain surgeon and yeah. then when you get to the top when you graduate from med school it's like congratulations you're a brain surgeon and by the way also you're a fighter pilot <laughs> so you have to <laughs> do both of these things and that's uh so it the problems are real they're just not actual problems right. compared to the i always feel like i need to say that because if you talk about if you do any kind of woe is me stuff you feel ridiculous very quickly um, it, as Conan O'Brien said in his audition, he was talking in, in, when he was doing his test shows, there's this moment that I think about all the time. He was doing his test show for NBC and he's talking to a model and he says like, so modeling, like, you know, that must be hard, which is a very boring thing to say. Yeah. And then she kind of starts to answer and then he kind of realizes how dumb he sounded yeah. and says like, well, obviously it's not hard like turning a big crank is hard <laughs> <laughs> you know? it is and I, so i always say i always think of that when it's like these are not actual problems they're yeah. real problems but they're not actual problems so all that that whole preamble aside i do find that it's true that you can anyone who has run a show especially people who've run network shows yeah and obviously the difference is like network shows have more episodes and you know 22 we did 28 or something of the office one year i wasn't running the show but there, it's a there's a difference between show writing and network comedy and like a six episode you know Netflix HBO thing or whatever. But generally speaking, you can pretty much talk to anyone else who's had the job and this, the it have find something in common. There are um, a number of things that you have said. Like we haven't had many conversations. No, but um, you came to the set of, I came of to the Parks set of and Rex one year, like four season. Four. four years ago this yeah. or next month right it was the leslie was running for office i remember yes and there was the jumping in and out the the rule that i there, there was the rule that oh. you had discovered that taft, you, you, there was taft oh yeah to, uh, the, uh, right um, there was a rule where you couldn't do the campaigning within the building so that's you right. kept jumping inside and outside that's right and it was very fun and it was very cold and i yeah. think i was still under the illusion that california was always warm which i now know is very untrue Disabused but, of that yeah um 
But in our short time talking, you said three things to me, I think, that I've been just dining out on since. Really? I've been quoting them a lot, and I'm going to get to them. But one of them actually just came up naturally, which was you said something along the lines of there are five essential planks to being a showrunner, like five jobs, and you can only ever do three of them well or yeah. four of them well. It was some some number like that. Yes. And I I, I think of that often. And again, <laughs> yeah. not, not, not turning a crank hard, but, yeah. you know, you want... Everyone, for the most part, in in any business, but we'll talk about show business, wants to do a good job. Everyone's trying to be to make something good. Mm-hmm. Running up against the limits of what you can and can't do, and learning those limits on that level has got to be a, a, that's going through the ringer, not turning the crank, but going through the ringer. Yeah, that's and and the biggest part of doing the job well is finding and trusting other people who can do some part of the job. Well. Delegating, yeah, and. Delegating is sort of a, a simplistic term, but it is what you're doing. It's it's more than that because you have to find people with whom you're sort of creatively and artistically aligned. Mm-hmm. Not all of those people are doing jobs that are purely creative or artistic. But, for example, one of the most important jobs, in fact, arguably the most important job in any TV show is a line producer. It's a person who never gets any credit. No one ever knows their name. Um, they're the people who basically run the business end of the show. They're the people who handle all the hiring and firing. They handle all the budgetary stuff. They handle all, they just run, they run the show in a real way, not in the fake way that showrunners run shows. They actually are the people who are like, get the, keep the lights on. And the line producer at Parks and Rec is a guy named Morgan Sackett. And he, we kind of just got lucky. He was available. He, um, is a very calm person. He uh, he liked me and he liked Greg and he signed on. And then slowly as the show went on, it was like, oh, this is this person is the most important person who works here in some ways, except for maybe Amy Poehler. <laughs> this is the most right. important person. These are the two people who keep the lights on. Yeah, exactly. And he part of the reason why he was so great is because while he was in charge of like budgeting and scheduling and kind of dealing with NBC and all that sort of stuff, he also is incredibly funny and very um, subtly kind of creative and interesting. And by the time the show went off the air, he was directing episodes and he was always... Again, he so could, that name, I yeah. don't know many line producers, but I feel yeah. like that name sounded very and, familiar. And he would be on the set um, with a new director and like helping the new director. And this is, this is like, I, I always get made fun of for using these analogies, but this is like what Bill Belichick does, right? Bill Belichick, when he's putting his team together, is like, I have a limited number of people who can be on this roster. And if I can find someone who can play like outside linebacker and a strong safety in a pinch and can be on the hands team and can also be on the like punt team and also can like, you know... Super utility. Yeah, those super utility guys. It's why like Ben Zobrist makes so much money. It's because he can play any position. And like those... And when you start to think of a show in that way and you find those people who can actually do all those jobs people will say to you like, wow, how it must be so hard to run a show. And you say, yes, it is. It's so hard. It's, a, <laughs> it's just a nightmare. You have no idea. And meanwhile, by the end, it was such a well-oiled machine that we all got home to see our kids every night, which isn't a given That's nice. in this business. And, and the reason that that happened was mostly because of people like Morgan. It was like I did my job, which was to make sure that the scripts were in good shape and that the 
actors were well served and that the like big picture of the show was moving along in the right direction and a lot of other people did a lot of other things really well and that's when it that's when it works let's talk about that that specific thing that i find really fascinating and i think parks did this better than almost any show in recent memory which is you kept your eye on the big picture even while you kept the move the smaller pieces moving you know it was a show that was tonally consistent and told us a story and moved the story along um how you know i have a bunch of questions about parks and i'm particularly interested in how you're going to talk about it from this vantage point because the show went off the air um 11 months ago now. right um how do you do how how do you not lose yourself in the weeds obviously you you you're super utility guy your ben zobrists are out there doing it <laughs> but how did you maintain and specifically in relation to parks how did you maintain your grip on the big picture of the show while you were managing the, you know, episode 17 of season, whatever. Right. Part of it happened accidentally in that when the show was moved to mid season, season three, Mm -hmm. we were in the midst of already having to shoot a bunch of extra episodes because Amy was pregnant and we were, she was going to give birth like right when we would have started at season three. This is the one where, so this is, sorry to interrupt. So this is the end of the season when, when, um, Adam and Rob joined and the harvest, that harvest, that that was the fall. It was the, right. So what happened is the end of season two, Rob and Adam came in, Rob and Adam Scott and, Amy had gotten pregnant, and so we needed to just basically roll through the end and shoot more episodes that we could bank at the beginning of season three so that she could have the baby and then recover, and then we could pick up. Such a diva. (laughs) Unreal. She needed two months. The rumors are true, basically. (laughs) What a monster. So after doing 24 episodes of season two, we had to take like a one week break and then start episode three. And it, and it was threatening to, to destroy us. How did you spend that week? <laughs> like crying, yeah. mostly crying. Oh, see, okay. Yeah, see, there you go. You are an emotional uh, guy. So I sort of made this snap decision that the only possible way that we could actually pull this off is if instead of just trying to break six more random stories, mm-hmm we had some kind of arc that we could say like, okay, if we know where this begins and ends, then we can sort of fill in the middle. Like Mm -hmm. if there's a project that she's working on, if there's something that we could use to help generate stories. And so we came up with this harvest festival idea because you didn't, you just didn't have the time to do 20 individual break, break 20 individual ideas in order to get six good ones. Right. Really like, and so it was incredibly successful creatively and also very helpful to us interesting and so what that did is it started a thing where i was like well you know we did that out of necessity because we were under a tremendous amount of time pressure but it was really fun yeah and it went really well and at the end of that arc when the harvest festival is put on it felt very satisfying because you had been you know network tv has always been a volume game it's like yes the the history of network comedies especially is like you the characters start somewhere they go on a little tiny journey they end up exactly where they were before right. the next week you don't have to have seen what happened before you can tune in at any moment and can catch up that's not the way tv is anymore it just yeah. doesn't now it's heavily serialized and but but broadcast sitcoms were not even at, even that ago. even at that point it felt a little risky which is hilarious right. yeah. to say but it felt a little risky because it was like you know and we did a lot of stuff where if you look at those Harvest Festival episodes, at the beginning of every episode, there's some kind of 
talking head where Leslie very quickly Recaps. catches you up. Yeah. yeah, like we're doing this thing and it's, it's very important that this happens for this reason and blah, blah, blah. Because it would have been even like in 2012, like previously on Parks and Recreation. That's exactly it would have right. been a little strange. And now, but now that's crazy. That would, that does seem crazy even then, that that happened even that, um, even though it was only five years ago. Yeah. But at the end of that arc, we I was like, well, we should do this all the time. Like why? Yeah. I mean, it was out of necessity then, but why not do it out of just fun and a sense of like why not for the rest of the time the show is on so going into the season four it was sort of like all right um we might get canceled at any moment that was by the way the other thing was that we was were, always there we were always almost canceled so it was like season four what if it's the election season which was originally something greg and i had talked about for the final year of the show that would maybe be her journey yeah and it was like well there's no better like there's literally no better arc than that when you think about breaking out a season, cause it's like literally episode one, she announces she's running mm-hmm. and the finale is the, is the election. Like that's great. And we just kept doing that. And so part of that, part of the idea of keeping your eye on the big picture was, uh, it began out of necessity and then it became just something that we did all the time. Good, good things tend to come. I think in TV, not necessarily good feelings, desperate feelings can come from this, but good <laughs> things tend to come from it when you don't save anything, you know, you, you, yes. you, 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 you trust that, that the well is not going to run dry yeah. and you don't sit on things because then, you know, you, you don't, nothing is stalled. Everything is, you're, you're go, go, go. And you're giving everything every time. That certainly has been good for the medium, in my opinion, Yeah, is that now the, the way that TV used to monetize itself really mm-hmm. was by make the most of it you can and then sell it for the most money. Yep. The world is so different now and the economics of TV are so different that, for example, to bring this back to Damon Lindelof, he can get through season two of The Leftovers. He's now made 20 episodes mm-hmm. of that show. And he can like put everything he has into those two seasons and then get to the end and then have a talk with HBO and say, how about one more season yeah. of, and by the way, still indeterminate number of episodes. And everybody's Everyone, happy. Everyone's fine. He's happy. HBO is HBO happy. HBO has something nice in its catalog that will be viewed forever. Forever and ever and ever on HBO Go or any of their yep. other <laughs> millions of platforms. I as a viewer, I'm happy because I feel like they are holding nothing back. They are going like full tilt all the time. So everybody wins. And that the freedom to release from the concept of the of more equals better mm-hmm. has made all of, in my opinion, has made all of TV better, I think. Yeah. And it's funny, the 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 language of serialization is so written into the next generation, the younger generation's DNA of how they experience TV that um, I don't know if you've encountered this, but like when I've spoken to to high school kids, high school now kids, you know, the show they most want to talk about is Friends. Like they, Interesting. that's their favorite show. Well, first of all, they say we don't want, I don't watch TV. They say I watch Netflix. Do you write <laughs> about Netflix? And I'm like, I do. I, I'm so old. I call it TV. Right. And they're like, do you know about Friends? I'm like, I know a little something about Friends. <laughs> but I only bring it up to say that they love Friends they binge watched all 200 episodes to know the whole story oh my god which is insane because the people (laughs) making that show stumbled into a couple things that they kept running back to and ross and rachel and the things that keep you coming but that was not a show that was made to be serialized there was no essential like gunther wasn't the murderer (laughs) you know what i mean like although if he had been (laughs) i mean (laughs) first of all we we can assume he was. I'm going to extrapolate and say that, yeah, <laughs> the show had been on one more year. Also, what else was he doing? I mean, he, he, was, a, he was a 50-year-old barista in a very 
high high expensive. So they wa- they just were like, it's a let's see, two hundred episodes, whatever, a hundred hours. Yeah. I'm gonna just sit here for a week and just watch. But like this is what I do now, and I don't right. want to miss a moment, and none of my friends want to miss a moment, and we'll talk about every moment, and that is the language that they understand TV to be. Not wow. not like when they were like, were you a, fr- a fan of Friends? I was like, yeah. Do you remember all of the episodes? And I'm like, because <laughs> I do. I like, watched them. I'm like, last no, week. you know, they were they were there. And they well, went, they went I, to England once when we were doing the office early on. Greg Daniel cited a statistic to us, which that that showed that people who consider themselves to be a fan of a show, mm-hmm. on average, watched about one out of three episodes of that show. Like, if you say if people who uh, self-identified as a fan of Friends, yeah. twenty years ago, would probably watch one out of three uh, roughly six or eight a year that's no longer the case that's no longer the case and that and he he was discussing that by way of saying we are working on a show that has a, a real significant romantic arc in jim and pam yes and, i was going to bring it to this right yeah. and so while we're doing this arc we have to be cognizant of the idea that people may be even if they love the show maybe only popping in every third week to check in and so he he was saying he was basically saying we need to slow down like because the, the writers wanted to speed it up yeah the writers wanted to go 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 and get them together and then other right and then we were like we we went way in the other direction and we're like wait 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 no they can't they can't ever get together we should get to season 10 before they ever hold hands <laughs> and it was this wild oscillation Would, all the time yeah and now were you on one side of this debate i never wanted them to get together i was vehemently opposed to some of the stories that were told early in season two because i thought they were making it too obvious that jim was being too obvious to pam that he liked her can i guess a member of the writing staff that was into the rom-com aspect of it can i throw out a name i have feel like i'm gonna i'm gonna know what you're gonna say I, 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 it's mandy something it's, you know it's, i i won't honestly i won't speak for her because i don't remember where she came down on the divide i right. will say that that or that the majority of people didn't want them to get together like that, that it was like that yeah that, it, that we felt partly that was because we had broken from the british show a little bit by making michael scott more of a nice person than yeah. david brent and um and that we sort of felt like maybe to compensate for that we should go truer to the sadness of the romantic story of the british thing there was a lot going on but i i was on record at the time of saying i didn't want them to kiss in the in the season two finale and given the fact that that's probably the most beloved and famous episode of the show ever i can definitely say i was wrong it's amazing you ever worked in this town again um no but the thing about the office it's interesting It, it really is a bridge show between eras of television because yeah you know, people who love the British version, and I, I was one of those people, you know, immediately thought, well, you could never do this mm-hmm. because you could, first of all, how, how, how young we were, a six, you know, 12 episodes of a show in America, you could, you could never do that. Sure. And now, of course, you can. But I remember um, being really, really impressed with the subtle ways that the show was broad, broad, not in the humor, but in the scope of it to run multiple seasons right you know um immediately a much larger ensemble Mm -hmm. taking some of the pressure off the lead the softening of the lead character in a way Mm -hmm. that is necessary if you're going to spend this much time with him yeah um but those are sort of old tv values put on it on the flip side of that the quick resolution more or less romantic resolution of jim and pam and then the commitment to keeping it i always found very very impressive and very groundbreaking yeah because you're essentially putting characters on an island story-wise, right? Right. Or you have to do the real challenge, and this is something you did very well with Parks, which is, okay, well, what's the next interesting story? 
right other than they they flirt they kiss or they break up right and the difference in the playbook that was run and a lot of this work i should say was done after i left the show i was at the office for the first four seasons and then a tiny bit of season five so much of the work of jim and pam in their like post getting together life was after i was gone but the the difference in the playbook that they ran that was really smart was i think and we we tried to do this too on parks and rec with with leslie and ben once they got together was to say just because they're together and even just because they're married you don't have to tell stories about them all the time and if you just simply don't put the two of those people in a story together it doesn't feel like they're dating or they're married or whatever in terms of like how much attention you're giving to it i think that the the thing that makes people scared as viewers whenever you get the will they won't they or whatever couple together is that now every episode is going to be about them it's going to be about how cute they are or how great they are or what happens in their life or 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 whatever dangling them over peril and pulling them exactly or like are they going to break up which what's going to happen when they meet each other's parents is that and then you're going to talk about nothing but them and then every week kids (laughs) right Uh, by the way i I, sorry to interrupt i just have to say this before i'll forget i think that kids on tv shows are the greatest unforced error that a staff can ever do and what you did with the time jump (laughs) and just not doing it yeah was so i find you know what i'm gonna say was inspiring oh because what we're talking about here even though i just interrupted you terribly is (laughs) there's a certain way of thinking about story and how tv needs to work and then there's the radical idea of saying but what if it wasn't right we didn't have to what if ben and leslie had children as they would it's very likely that they would mm-hmm. they loved each other very much they were that's the sort of people they were but we don't have to tell stories about the children that's right you just don't have to and that's weirdly radical yeah i had a writing teacher in college and he a playwriting teacher and he used to talk about the process of writing was like you walk into a dark room and you don't know what's in there and you have a flashlight and you sort of scan the whole room with your flashlight and you get a little sense of like what might be out there. And then you see something that interests you and you walk towards it. And as mm-hmm. you walk towards it, everything around what's lit up gets darker. And what, but what's in the flashlight gets, mm-hmm. gets lighter. And that's what you want to write about the thing that catches your interest. And then you forget about everything else and you just focus on that one thing. And that analogy comes back to me all the time in terms of like when we're saying, okay, Ben and Leslie have kids. I think, boy, those kids, those theoretical kids are in a very dark part of that room in terms of what I'm interested in. Yeah. I couldn't care less about a bunch of infants. They're boring. They're just lumps and they sit there and they ruin comedy. Yeah. And so it was very, it was a very um, quick and simple and like swift decision to eliminate them entirely from the narrative of the show. Yeah. And I think it was totally the right move because who cares about infants, really? I mean, <laughs> I mean, at, in season six, I will say, like, for some shows, yeah. it's the purpose of the show. Who knows? But for our purposes, we were writing a workplace comedy about an ensemble of people. Yeah. We had people we had. I remember thinking, like, we have Chris Pratt. We have Aziz Ansari. We have Aubrey Plaza. We have Adam Scott and Rob Lowe and, and Amy Poehler. And we're going to give a story time to a bunch of lumps who sit in, in like little, you know, car seats. Like, what are we? That's insane. That would be insane to give one second of time. And from there, it was a very simple jump. It was a very simple jump to get to the jump, basically. Um, you know, it, it was interesting to hear you say that the that the, the season long arcs was a matter of necessity because you know, I, I, it is no secret to anyone listening to this or has read any interview uh, that you've ever done, the esteem in which you hold the wire. Yes. Um, I, 
very much believe, and I wrote this, that like I, I, I like to consider Parks and the Wire as two sides of a, of a coin in terms of TV storytelling and in terms of visions of society. <laughs> One, Parks, Parks was a little grittier. Par, I, I thought Parks say. was a little rougher. It, you know, it got darker, <laughs> especially what happened to the kids, you know, in season, season four. Um, maybe I'm mixing them up. But um, no, but that, you know, I, I don't, I, I hope, I'd like to hope that the world isn't always as dark as David Simon presents it. Right. Um, I'd like to hope that sometimes the world could be a smidgen, <laughs> a fraction of how light uh, Leslie Nope sees it. Sure. Um, and I just appreciated being able to, the reason I like TV is I get to have both. And I think the visions complement each other. But, um, but that aside, you know, The Wire was, among many things that it, that it, that it did so well, was just absolutely committed to change. You know, every season, right. every character, full forward in the consequences of decisions and and what you know and, and the ripples in the pond, so right. to speak. And Parks, to me, was, did that as well. And that's as we've already had this, this part of the conversation, but that's very rare for comedy and network comedy, especially. But I also imagine it could be nerve-wracking, exciting, a little bit. It's a little bit wild because you have things, as we said, you had things that work. And you pushed past them and tried something new. Yeah. You get Leslie on City Council. We have some new funny characters. We're going to take her off. This relationship's working. No, they're going to break up. I mean, you kept yeah. pushing. Yeah. Well, that was the that was the DNA of the show and the character, really, right? Is like, right. you know, first of all, thank you for mentioning my show and The Wire in the same sentence. That's oh, how I got you in the room. <laughs> but I, I think that the point of that show was like, there were the point of The Wire to me was there are people who are trying really hard to do things that they think are good or mm -hmm. that can change the way that these sort of calcified systems operate. And they just bump their heads against the ceiling. And the the happiness, whatever happiness you get from the wire, you get in the tiniest little dose. It's like the very end, spoiler alert, of season five. <laughs> you see Naaman, and he like seems to have escaped. Of all of the kids, maybe the least likely at one yep. point to escape... And he somehow escaped. He and Bunny Colvin found a little salvation with each other. Yeah. And he's like on the debate team and stuff. And you just get this tiny glimmer. It doesn't in any way make up for the misery that you feel at the fate of the other kids yeah. from that season. But he, they do get, they do show you, they're basically telling you like, you got to try and you're going to fail. But one... And, and the odds are... Odds bleak. are stacked against you, but you got to try. And basically Parks and Rec, I always thought of as the comedy version of that idea, which is... A little bit of a a fantasy frankly of like mm -hmm. if you try that hard and you work that hard and you gut it out and you really truly believe in the concept of like public service you can get from point a to point z wherever you think she ended up at the end of the show and also along the way you'll make a lot of people's lives better point z is the white house in that analogy <laughs> well i'm just saying <laughs> yeah point z that's right it's a good apt metaphor for the white house but um it just is the journey that she went on was a journey that you that she got to go on because of her outlook on the world. And, you know, if it would be very funny to like do a to like do a, a thought experiment where you put you swap her and McNulty and see what happens. You know, <laughs> I think it would be probably think, wouldn't work out well for Leslie. I think Beatty would be surprised. <laughs> I think first and foremost, you got to start yeah, at home. Good point. Waking up in the morning. I think Bunk would roll with it. Yeah, I think he'd be fine. I think. I, you know, I, now I'm just lost. I think Kima would be really fine with it. I think she'd frankly. be very I happy think she'd with be that. super fine with it. I think she'd feel a lot better. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, now I'm totally lost. Um, <laughs> but also, um, you know, the the other thing about parks, and before we move on to other topics, um, it really it was a it was a cheerful, optimistic show, and I think finding comedy in that is seems to me to be in some ways more challenging than easy comedy, which is often you know what, what's nelson on the simpsons <laughs> just <laughs> pointing and laughing pointing and laughing yeah like, look at look at these people like mean-spirited yeah. comedy and and to create characters that you emotionally care about and you root for while still being true to that not selling them out but still being funny that's a challenge and i and i feel like it's not often recognized but that is it seems to be a hallmark of the work that you want to do and that you do do yeah it's also by the way just the natural result of working with amy like amy is right. a is a sen- i mean she's quite literally the concept of joy right yeah. like it's that she has now played right, that part. she played the role of the concept of joy yeah. and for good reason and so part of it is just like that's how that's what i like that's what she likes that's what kind of person she is can i say that that set visit you know when i when i met you and i was on the set and she yeah. was filming so we never actually had a moment to speak right but three times during the shivering outdoors she just flitted by and patted me on the shoulders and asked how i was doing <laughs> That's my only interaction with her. And yeah. I feel like that was a accurate reflection of my um, yes. through the screen interaction with her. <laughs> that's she exactly just, right. She just patted me on the back. Yeah, that's what kind of person she is. And so, yes, that is what I like. But it's also what she likes. And it's what a lot of the other, it's what Chris Pratt likes. Yeah. Um, it's not what Aubrey Plaza likes, but it's what Aubrey Plaza will begrudgingly do if yeah. you force her. Which, by the way, if you pair her up with Chris Pratt. Yeah. So that it was a natural outcrop. It wasn't like, I honestly, I didn't. And I don't think Greg did either. We didn't set out to say, like, we're going to do this show that's going to be positive. It was yeah. just sort of that's what we like to write. That's who the character was. And 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 then what happened was we figured out, you know, you need, obviously, it's like the oldest saw in the world. You have to have conflict. Without conflict, there's no story. There's yeah. really no comedy. But you don't have to have, theoretically, conflict between and among the main cast on your show. It helps, but it also it also sometimes leads to like sadness and anger and and bad and bad feelings. So we were just like, all right, we're gonna get conflict. It's us versus them, and the them is the library or Eagleton or Ron's ex wife or whatever students. corporations or people in the town who just resist <laughs> change or are ignorant of the law or whatever. And once you do that, and you're spending most of your time with the main cast, and they all like each other, and they're all trying to you know make each other's lives as good as possible then the end the vibe of the show ends up being very sort of happy and upbeat you um you know it wasn't turning a crank but you were working very hard on this show Mm -hmm. somehow surviving uh miraculously surviving not just for uh, you know a full seven seasons but being able to call your shot and end the show in your way this is not common certainly on network um you've now had about a year since then so you're able to look back on it i guess the question two-part question is do you look back on it and how do you feel from this vantage point when you it was you know you were you're so in it yeah and then you're suddenly out of it it's very um i feel incredibly lucky is the lucky is the main thing i feel about the show for in every way from the from the beginning through the middle through the end i mean the show was like either canceled or essentially canceled like a number of times yeah. and then did were there days when you drove home and you said i think that's it yeah there were there were several 
Um, there was a day when we found out we had been moved to mid-season, season three, that's usually not a very good sign. Yeah. At least it didn't used to be. Now I think it's different. And now yeah. it's sort of like, well, whatever. Well, also now I think your order's cut. It doesn't matter. Like it's, it's a very different world. Networks also seem to have just thrown up their hands about the fall and it's like, it's the killing season. Yeah. We, yes. If we save you to mid-season, you'll get different attention. It ended up, I, so that day I, we just stopped working in the writer's room and I took all the writers to get a beer at the bar near the Radford lot. And everyone was super bummed out, and the mood was definitely like, oh boy, this is it. It was was really fun. This happened too quickly. And I remember I stood up and I said, first of all, I love all of you guys. I probably cried a little bit. I said, I love all you guys, and I think you're great writers. And also, we don't know what this means. This could end up helping us. Now, by the way, I was completely... (laughs) full of shit can i curse on this podcast yeah Yeah. i was i was not completely full of shit but semi full of shit because i i was saying what i wanted to believe and i thought that at some level i might be right but mostly i was just trying to like you know it's like michael keaton and gung-ho i was just trying to like keep everybody you know on the assembly line but what i said was we don't (laughs) know japanese were taking over the show (laughs) what i said was we have no idea for all we know this will end up helping us like for all we know the show that replaces us won't do that well and it'll get canceled and we'll just make a good show and i think the episodes we're making are really strong and we'll swoop in at you know in january and we'll do better than whatever show replaces us and who knows, maybe we could go last another five years. And then it, but the thing that I said almost literally happened. Yeah. And so mostly what I feel about the entire history of the show is luck Mm -hmm. and good fortune and a sense of like, it's very similar to the way I felt when I left college, which was, I love that so much. I wish I could have stayed there forever also, I know that if I'd stayed there forever, I wouldn't have loved it so much. It's right. like it's the it's the kind of perfect it's best case scenario for how you feel about anything that you work on for that long is how I feel about it. The the other thing, and I and I I, I won't push you too hard on this because um, it, you're still in business with the company I'm about to ask about. <laughs> um, but that must have been very strange to make to be making. And again, I'll say this: you don't have to, but making what to my mind is the a perfect NBC show. Now, I I love. Uh, you know, I've, I've written about this before. I think there are very few networks that have the personal attachment that NBC does, and it's mainly due to the comedy brand. Right. Um, so to make something that is smart and warm and funny and engaging and was on Thursday nights, you know, to me that mattered. I think to a bunch of people it mattered. And then to be making that show and making it exceptionally well and seeing, I often use the word crater. Um, <laughs> in polite company, I'll instead say decision, you know, different directions being decided upon all around you. The type of show that you were a paragon of was not the priority of the network for a few years. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Um, To see that happening around you, how can you... I'm curious how you would characterize it, having been in it, taking the long view because you're still in business with this this network. But, you know, the the year where it was... was, uh, I'm trying to remember. It was Community Parks... 30 Rock. Uh, 30 Rock and, and The Office, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was an all-timer, a Thursday night lineup, I yeah. think. And the last one, I think. <laughs> you know, there were there was, which is the must-see for each generation. That yeah. Every generation had one, and then they got well, away from it. Well, here's what I would say about this. If you want to be um, not not just sort of like positive or optimistic or charitable, but but to some extent honest... What you would say is 
if you think about the amount that the TV industry and the business has changed in the last 15 years. Or five years. Or even five years, but certainly 10, Mm -hmm. 15 years going, you know, The Office debuted in, I think, 2005, right? We made it in first season in 2004. So let's call it a decade. The amount that things have changed in that decade or so is incalculable, or as Michael Scott would have said, incalculable. And the people who are in charge of programming on the networks just were trying stuff. And that's, that is it to some extent, their job is like, we got to try something. You know, Jeff Zucker ran the network for a very long time, had a very important job of one kind or another at NBC for 25 Mm -hmm. years. He is vilified in many ways for some of the decisions he made. Certainly some of the decisions he made at various levels of his job weren't things that I agreed with, I'll say. You, you weren't if a super size guy? <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? He tried it. And yeah, he, tried and it. he was, he, he and a lot of men and women, to, less, to a lesser extent, <laughs> women like him. It is are, the TV business. Yeah. We're like, are, are, we're in the position of just having to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall. Yeah. And as a result, in a in a world where the sands are shifting and no one really understands, To by the way, to this day, no one really understands what's going on. Yeah. They just tried a bunch of stuff. And so I, you know, you can, it's very easy to say you had 30 Rock and Community in the office and Parks and Rec all on the same night and you neglected them and you didn't pay them enough attention and that is, and you're going to live to regret it, mister. But another way to say it is like, hey, you put all four of those shows on the air. Community ran. Kept them on the air. A long time. Parks and Rec ran a long yes. time. None of these shows were high rated. 30 Rock 30 wasn't Rock high rated. The Office was because it had a grandfathered audience from a time when, you know, it was getting massive ratings in the first couple of years. But even The Office by the end, it was tailing off. So, you know, I I can't. I, everybody makes bad decisions in TV at some point, like every network, every studio head, every, every actor, every writer, everybody screws up a lot. And so all I, honestly, all I feel looking back on it is gratitude that I got to make 125 episodes of that show because that was in no way something that could have happened if I were somewhere else or, you know. You, though, I believe, and I, I, I share this to some degree, I think you, you appear to be a believer in broadcast TV. Yes, like, I am. In the possibility of it, in the reach of it. Um, you're making a new show for NBC now called Good Place. That's right. Um, which sounds terrific. You have Ted Danson. Ted Danson uh, and Kristen Bell. Ted Danson Bell. on an NBC comedy. I have I mean, Sam Malone on an NBC comedy. Well done. Uh, and Kristen <laughs> Bell. And you have a straight-to-series order. That's right. So this fall will premiere That's on right. NBC. Um, in the face of all these shifting industry sands and the way, you know, viewers' expectations have changed, audiences' pattern, viewing patterns have changed, what made you want to do this for them, again, to go to NBC and say, I want this audience, I want this place to make this show, knowing that with your track record and, you know, your ability to attract talent, you could say, I just want to make six of them. And I want to make it first, you know, right. for crackle or whatever, <laughs> just to pull that, you know, pull that out of the air. And yeah, and those would exist. I want to make it for um, for Rice-A-Roni. Rice-A-Roni has an app now where you can make TV shows for them. That sounds terrific. <laughs> they all have to be set in San Francisco. They have the huge talent. Sorkin's doing a thing for Rice-A-Roni now. Um, well, it's a good question. Uh, one very obvious and straightforward, but also true answer is they were awfully nice to me the last time I did a show for them and they kept it on for seven years despite its ratings and 
not only that, but when I was done with it, they came back to me and said, we would like you to do another show for us. And it's very hard. I think when I, it would, it would have been very hard for me at that point to say like, yeah, no, thanks. Um, not impossible, but uh, but it would have been hard because I feel loyalty to are, them. Are the same people there in the comedy department? It, it's not. It's, I mean, if you go all the way back to when Greg Daniels and I first sold the show, I mean, it's changed three times but, over. But the but the, the the Greenblatt regime and the people he has in place for the last few years at Parks are still there. Yes, they're there, and and Bella Bajaria, who runs Universal oh, uh, TV, right. who's great. She's great, um, and I, she's she has been nothing but nice to me, and. So there is a, a absolutely a sense of like kind of old timey 1950s like company loyalty that I feel because they've treated me very well. They let me hire the cast that I wanted that Greg and I wanted on Parks and Rec yeah. to to a, a almost identical extent. They let Dan Gorett and me hire the people, we, the writers, and the but, cast we wanted for Brooklyn Nine Nine. But this is Universal. Which is not necessarily the yes, same as NBC. but then also the people at the network kept the sh- the people at the network were could have turned the lights off and they did it. True, and um, and so they they were a very uh, nice and said like we we'd like to give you a show and we'll just put it on the air. You don't have to go through the whole process of making a pilot and that sort of thing. Um, so that's one big reason is that the people at the studio, which is Universal, and the people at the network, which is Bob and Bob Greenblatt and Jen Salky. And now the woman named Tracy Picosta, who is also great, they um, they wanted me to do it. And it's hard to it's hard. Why would I not want to do it for them? That's the sort of business end of it. There's a creative end of it, too. Yeah. Which is that I believe that there are many, 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 many advantages to doing a show on a premium cable or streaming service like for example there's no commercials you can curse you can do whatever you want you can make the episodes whatever length you want i like that you can do whatever you want was the third thing after cursing <laughs> let's do cursing I, I i wholeheartedly support cursing on tv i think there should be more cursing in general but, and more bleeping but beeping is funnier than cursing i kind of agree yeah. yeah um but you can also like there's you know on network you run you have to run the credits over the show which interrupts yeah. the show there's snipes for other shows that interrupt your show the, is, the, is that what those are called? The little dancing? That's what I I think so. Them. Yeah, the little there's snipe for it. Yeah, it's a great name. So I there are obviously there are many obvious advantages of of going somewhere besides a network, but I think there are also advantages that are maybe less obvious of staying on network. Besides just a sense of like loyalty that the NBC Peacock means something to me, it does. Mm-hmm. I think comedy works really well when there are a lot of obstacles to it. Um, I think obstacles breeds creativity and breeds good problem solving and i think that comedy works best when it's very crisp and lean interesting and i think that if you if you say to someone like you can have as much time as you want and you can there's no commercials and just you can mill around and just get in that pool and swim around i think a lot of in my opinion some comedies many comedies or at least half hour shows that are on other networks premium networks we'll call them can get a little meandery and a yeah. little kind of soft and and that's not to say that that's bad or maybe that's even what exactly what they're going for but there's a way in which having to write in a in a crisp three act structure or now it's like a four act structure which is a whole other yeah. problem but having to write two certain it when you're breaking stories it forces you to be really lean and mean it forces you to edit yourself. It forces you to think about the classic storytelling structure of Act One, Act Two, Act Three, and I and I. It's not that you 
don't remember those things. You don't suddenly forget them if you go somewhere else, but I think they become less vital to your process. And I kind of believe that it's good for writing to be to be presented with those specific obstacles for comedy at least. It's interesting because you know you um, you worked with Aziz and 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 Alan yeah. on Master of None, which right. is a terrific show. Thank you uh, on a premium service. That's right. But I I hope I'm not completely wrong when I say this, but in my memory at least, Master of None episodes stuck to more or less like 24 25 minutes is that they vary pretty wildly some of them are in that range many of them are yeah. in that range some of them are a little bit longer some of them get up up above 30 even what's well, um, a sign of how good it is that i didn't notice <laughs> that's right. because i was going to make this point that that they had edited but maybe that it's it's more that they found they didn't the, the vehicle they used the vehicle they needed i think so and, and also that show is obviously a completely different animal that show was basically 10 short films that That's were right. that yeah. were loosely connected totally through different two characters and... totally t- completely different but they did certain things and alan worked on parks and rec all seven years and played bass and, and played bass and mouse rat good memory but they did certain things that i think were really smart in that show is even though the show was could be longer, you know, significantly longer than it would have been if it had been on a network. The episodes have very clear themes. They have yes. cl- very clear subject matter. The subject matter of every episode is declared very boldly in a sort of 1970s filmic way at the beginning of yeah. every episode. And then and then they were very aggressive when they edited. We all we all worked on the editing together to some extent. I did some passes of them. They did other passes mm-hmm. and stuff. But they, I mean, Aziz is a stand-up and Alan's been writing network comedy for a long time and they weren't afraid to just go like, no, 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 tighter, 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 tighter. Yeah. Like, you didn't we get wa- too precious about it. They didn't fall yeah. into their own stuff. And I think that is to the show's great benefit. And I think if they had let them all kind of like hang out and meander, that there's, it wouldn't have been as kind of fun to watch. I mean, this is my problem you know, with like HBO and Showtime shows and Netflix shows, dramas are like 59 minutes now. Yeah. That's too long. They shouldn't be that long. It's too long. Yes. They don't have that much story to tell. I agree. We don't have that much time or interest. <laughs> I mean, I think most of the, much, I'm a broken record on this. I think some of the best storytelling is being done in a half hour form for any number of reasons. But one of which is you, you, you can, it's more appealing. You yeah. can get in and out. You can, you, you, you can, you feel like you can really dig in and watch something. Yes. At 30 minutes or 21 minutes on a network. That's um, right. And 59 minutes is a movie. It's it, almost it a, like movie, a movie, yeah. you know, and I agree. It bums me out. And, and maybe it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where we've all been used to watching entertainment at a certain length. Yes. And our brains and our souls start to sort of melt a little bit. And when it passes like 43, 44 minutes. Amen. And so... But also, I just think that there, I think that some of the shows that I watch that have a longer running time don't need that longer running yeah. time. I think, and I think the problem is, is that there's just a sense of like, we can fill up, you know, it's that thing of like a fish, a goldfish will grow to the size of the bowl that you put it in. Yes. I think that the bowl on some of those shows, on some of those it's, networks is infinite. It's portion control though. It's yeah. Same thing with yeah. Food. Like if you give someone unlimited access to, like if you put food on me in, in front of me on a plate, I'll eat the food. Right. And then, then I'll half as much, and I'll hungry. eat half as much, <laughs> yeah. and I'll be satisfied. And I, I think that may, this is also, by the way, we're in the infancy of this, right? This has yeah. just started. Netflix just started making, for example, pre, uh, its own content a few years ago. Yeah. I think it's the dust will settle, and I think people will maybe. Will, I'm guessing you'll see them pull back a little bit, but the 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 show should be as long as the story demands, not yeah. as long as you can take with it. Yeah, and. Part of what I like about being on a network is 
it's a little annoying that every episode has to be exactly 21 minutes and 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. I think it's extremely unlikely that the optimal length for every single yeah. episode of every show is exactly that long. In the later seasons of Parks, you would release we, longer yes. cuts. And because... I'm guessing we will on this show too. Yeah. But it it is, a, it, it is a sort of like, this is the deal, man. Like the, you have to write and edit and act a story that is this length yeah. and it's not very long and there's something that's kind of perversely appealing about that to me can you talk a little bit about the show i know there's a log line out there there's the yes. cast um I, I i i've gotten the impression that there's some things that we were not being told about it yet um <laughs> well you know here's the thing it's nine months away yeah and yeah but if if, if my wife said that she was pregnant i'd be like oh let's talk about baby names <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I would be all in. For nine months, you talk about... We differed on this. I loved playing that game more than anything else. She was like, but we already picked a name. We're good. And I was like, can we just play? And you were still just naming Philadelphia Phillies from the late 80s. You know me too well. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, Rico Bronia Greenwald was sort of a weird choice, but... Maybe just Rico. He's from Massachusetts, by the way. He played for the Red Sox at the end of his career. Oh, so Home, that's... Hometown boy. Yeah, there common. we go. That's also, our guy. Also, there's a great tradition of Jews named Rico. I just think it's a good... <laughs> but, um... No, but, like, I wanted to play the game. So, all, I'm only saying nine months is not too long for me, because... Well... I, I, I guess what you're saying is you want to... You got to prime the pump, but not I, too far in advance. It, the way the world works now, I think, is if I just said, here's what the whole show is, here's what's going to happen in it, or whatever, that... By the time the show is actually on the air, people will be like, "Haven't I seen that all? I've thought that old thing." Yeah, it like sunk I, into that part of the lizard brain. Where yeah, it's like and like there's there's the upfronts in May where they'll show. I'm sure we will have shot the first episode by then. I'm sure they'll show clips. Yeah. Then there's a TCA thing in like July. They'll you get, you all have a panel. Like and... then there will be like a bunch of interviews in August. I mean, there's so many moments between now and the That's time the true. show is on. That it just feels like if I just say everything about it, here's here's the one thing I'll say about it that it helps to explain who Kristen Bell's character okay. is. So you're in you're at a red light, okay? And let's say you're at a red light in LA and there are people it's going plausible so far this <laughs> so show. So far, right. So there are people going, you know, perpendicular to you through the green light, right? And there's mm-hmm. a person who's waiting to take a left past your car and back back from where you just came from, yeah. right? How, in your estimation, according to the social contract that we all kind of sign when we get into our cars, how many cars are allowed as the light turns from green to yellow to red? How many cars are allowed to take that left and go backwards where you were just coming from before there's a problem? Oh, uh, I think the social contract is two. That's right. right. That's exactly the right yeah. answer. The answer is two. Yeah. We all know the answer is two. It's not legal, but we we're all, all know. fine with two, yeah. right? occasionally there will be a third car right when there's a third car what i think is like okay buddy yeah or ma'am that's not okay you've made a mistake Uh, you've broken the social contract however i don't know your life maybe you are racing home to be with your child maybe you have just had a terrible day and you just want to go somewhere and like see your friend and talk about how you had a terrible day i'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. sometimes there's a fourth car well that's just and when that fourth so the way that i've been explaining the show to people is Kristen bell her character in the show is the driver of that fourth car that's great and at some point in the show in the in the first episode she's going to have a realization that what she has that she has lived her whole life 
acting like the person who takes who is the fourth car who doesn't who thinks my need to go left trumps everyone else's need to go straight and i don't care and she's going to realize that that's not a good way to live and she's going to try to change and ted danson will help her and ted, ted danson will anyway. help her that's correct yes. ted danson just can i just say an unparalleled career in television probably the greatest tv actor ever right i would I agree mean, well when we met um let's just talk about fargo let's not talk about it but oh my god <laughs> yeah i sat down with him to pitch him this show on uh the day, the day before my birthday had you met him before had you no met any... never met him is he, is he is he very handsome in person he's a total dreamboat yeah and <laughs> i sat down with him and he said i have to tell you i'm very excited about this meeting now he said this because he's also the world's nicest person yeah he said i'm very excited about this meeting and i said i bet i'm more excited <laughs> and he said why is that and i said well probably because i consider you to be the greatest actor in the history of the medium of oh, television okay and he laughed because he's a nice person. Yeah. Um, but I was being serious. It was, like, and I didn't plan to say that. It's just what came out of my mouth because I believe that that's true. If you look at his, I mean, first of all, if he had, if he had played Sam Malone and then retired, he'd be like top ten all yeah, the time. No question. And then everything he's done since then, it is in every different genre, including up to the most recent thing he's done in Fargo, is amazing. But also exciting that at his age, with his level of success. He continues to try new things. Yes. When you see him on board to death and he's having fun, he's playing. Yeah. And damages and we haven't seen him do that. Yeah. Um, that's exciting when an actor. I have to, to admit that. I had a hard time watching damages. I He'd liked the guy. show. Yeah. He there is a scene early on before you really know anything about him where he is having sex with I think a prostitute and doing cocaine. It's the first episode. Is that the first one? Yeah. And I saw that and I was like a, a part of my soul died. Was it a little bit like, <laughs> so this is what Sam Malone was like before he quit drinking? <laughs> you know, like dark amazingly, Sam I did not have that Why thought. Why has no one, I mean, there, that's some rich. A prequel? There, prequel like the prequel show? Cheers universe where it's yeah. like, how did Sam become Sam? Yeah. Um, Although you're, you <laughs> wouldn't want to see it though. Coffee mugs? You uh, wouldn't want to see it. That's no, the thing. Don't. That's why that character is so great. It's because you realize like, this is the guy he wanted and, to be all those years. And let's talk about like, people are fretting over casting young Han Solo. Like yeah. who has hair to play young Sam Malone? <laughs> who has the, no but not just hair. Like <laughs> no. the thing about that guy and that character to me was from the pilot on, he was just inhabiting that. He yeah. just was that guy and he was real and fully formed and you know a lot of some of the other characters changed and grew over the broader yeah in the in the in the way that like all shows kind of find themselves sam malone is the same i mean he got a little dumber i will say as years went on he got a little dumber he there were times when like they had a really good joke for like woody or coach and they just kicked it over they were like that doesn't fit here we'll kick it over to sam in the spirit of when i use the word crater before i'll say something that i don't think you you can which is i just think i speak for a lot of people when i also say thank you for airlifting him out of procedural saigon you know what i mean like he he was doing all these interesting things and then he went and and did a show i'm sure he was great on it because he's who wants who doesn't want to watch him do anything yeah and frankly in my own life there's no one i would rather solve my own cyber crimes than if 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 there were a crime committed in your house and you were scared yeah and ted danson showed up you'd be like oh thank goodness no but i i mean again i haven't watched the show so i assume a cyber crime is you know is, is like i can't retrieve a file or i saved it with the wrong extension but he could right you need to uh, update java or whatever exactly yeah. he's the one who shows up um <laughs> i'm just happy he's back doing something that he the, does really the thing that my producing partner said to him at the end of our meeting was comedy misses you that's, and I thought that was a very eloquent way to put it. And he likes to work and he likes to try new things yeah. and do different things. But 
he, you know, he's a generational talent in the world of comedy and I'm happy. I hope I don't screw it up. <laughs> I hope so too. So I, you've been very generous with your time. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I, I did want to go through, there were the other two phrases that you said to me that I, yeah, using. I'm so curious. Um, one was about com- making comedy uh-huh. and the, the way if, if in a perfect world, um, you said the way to make a comedy would be you make 10 episodes and then you throw them away and right. the 11th is the first one people see. That's right. And I think about that every time. I thought about that every time I reviewed a comedy. <laughs> I'm not given that luxury very right. often. Right. Um, but you try to... It did inform my thinking because you realize how much of comedy is chemistry and how yep. long it takes. And not just chemistry between the actors, but chemistry between the writers, between the writers and the actors. That's right. The The whole production, and it has to click and then it becomes like music. But it's discordant at first naturally so right that's you, right you don't... it's it's i think of it less about as a chemistry issue and more of just a trial and error issue right it's like we have you're solving a mathematical equation that has like 40 variables there's the cast all of the cast members there's all of the ways in which it's like you know if there's eight cast members let's say it's like whatever eight factorial combinations of them is it eight factorial, eight combinatorial? You didn't make the Big Bang Theory, so we don't, <laughs> we don't know. And there, then there's also the way that the writers write for those characters. There's the A, B, and C stories in every episode, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. There are so many variables that basically if you can hit on like three successful parts of the equation per episode for 10 episodes, then you will have figured something out. And that's not easy to do. It's like you're going to – you try a whole bunch of stuff. The In the second season of Parks and Rec, the, the I remember the – we figured out a lot of stuff late in season one, which we had all made on the fly. We didn't make a pilot, test it, look at it, yeah, and whatever. We, we just we made six episodes in a row, so we were getting feedback about like the pilot as we were writing episode four, and we course corrected pretty quickly. And I think the the sixth and final episode of that first season, which was That's called the Rock Show, show that, we all that was the one that where we we were like, okay, we got it. We I think we got it. But then in season two, we still had kinks to work out. We still like hadn't solved everything mm-hmm. like you never do. And we had, there were some episodes that were really easy and fun to make. There were some that were really hard. We brought Louis C.K. in. He was mm-hmm. great. We were like, maybe this is something. He sold a show, a little show called Louis at the time and had to go leave and do that. So it was like, That's weird. Yeah. Um, but there was a moment when that I mark as the true point at which like we began to see the matrix code of the show. And it was an episode called the camel. And it's not like a famous episode of the show, even for like hardcore fans. Mm -hmm. Like it's not one that you, that people cite very often. It's one of my personal favorites in part because totally accidentally the process of making the episode and the theme of the actual episode completely merged in like a way (laughs) that would have made Dan Harmon very proud. (laughs) Um, and it was basically like they, the team was trying to make a mural, was trying to design a mural, and they were competing against other departments. Mm-hmm. And they, Leslie, it, it, the title came from the old thing is if you ask a committee to make a horse, you end up with a camel. Oh, I remember this episode. Right. Yeah. And so what happened was she solicited ideas for this mural from everyone in the department, and she was afraid to tell anyone that their ideas were bad. Mm-hmm. And she tried to merge all of their ideas into one giant mural, and it was just a complete piece of garbage. And... That episode was the longest and hardest rewrite we ever did. It was written by, the first draft was written by a very talented writer named Rachel Axler. And she did a really great job and the story totally didn't work and it was not her fault. And then the poor woman um, sat with us as a team, as a writer's uh, team, and went through like 5,000 other versions. Originally, it was like they were designing a 
they were like landscaping they were designing a fountain it was like it was like we were so all over the map but what happened was we really we had a read through and it was okay and then we tore it apart and rachel very patiently like worked as a writer on the episode and everybody pitched a million things and eventually we came around and we finally cracked it and we had a second read through. It's the only time at Parks we ever had a second read through because it was so wildly different from what we had read the first time that we were, I was afraid that yeah. I was like, the actors just need to know what the hell they're going <laughs> to say on Monday. And we had a second read through and it was great. And then the episode itself turned into this. It was one of the first episodes where the point of the episode was that Leslie kind of just held everybody together in a big happy hug. And it's I still I have the piece of art that she ends up making um she hangs it at the end of the episode she hangs it on the on the, in the conference room yep. as and it says by us at the bottom and it's a st- stupid ugly awful miserable piece of art that looks like <laughs> someone said it looked like um art that like you would do in art therapy if you were in a military prison <laughs> it's like a to terrible reflect the truth of your experience you know, try to like work through whatever complicated feelings you have <laughs> And when the show ended, it was the first and really only thing that I took from the set. It was like this, because to me, that was the whole show right there, was that episode, the process of making it, the process of coming through that weird crucible and getting to the other side. And that's yeah. when the show began. It's in my office now at Universal. Um, and then the other thing you said to me, and this one really stuck, um, so in the very, very beginning of Grantland, when I just started writing about TV a lot, I decided that I had this really smart, totally unique observation about tv which was that the comedies i really liked were single cam and the comedies <laughs> i didn't like were multi-cam right pretty groundbreaking stuff Hugh, that's uh, yeah uh, did you get did you get death threats for that i got a controversial opinion it. that's um <laughs> so i had this uh, what a great idea and uh i think we had never met but someone who you know, i don't know maybe i think it was bill actually um passed along your email address so i was gonna get you for comment like what's sure. your take on this sure and you wrote a very nice to write back at all but you wrote a, a very gracious response which really sort of set me back on my heels which was just that you know i'm paraphrasing but you said that you know you believe that people use tv for different things mm-hmm. and it's sort of presumptuous to assume that everyone wants the same experience when they sit down at the end of a day and you know the, the types of pleasures that a old-fashioned multi-cam sitcom can provide are real mm-hmm. and the pleasures that a single cam camera can provide are real too, but they're different experiences and it's probably best. And this, again, you didn't lecture me, but you said it's probably best not to, this is my takeaway. It's probably best not to thumb my nose at something that 25 million people need. <laughs> what? And I was like, yeah, it's a good point. Not going to write that piece. But I, that actually really helped me watch TV critically yeah. for the next five years, because you're right. Like you, when we talk about TV, maybe we're talking about watching master of none on Netflix. Or maybe we're talking about watching the wire or, you know, maybe we're just deep Olive Kitteridge heads or whatever. Sure. But also, I like to watch Chopped. You know, I like yeah. to relax. And I feel like that's important to remember that it is a mass medium and there are different experiences happening every time you make it. Yes. And also that the, it started as a big tent and has only gotten bigger. And mm-hmm. now there's in one night you can watch whatever episode seven of Making a Murderer and then you can you know, exit out of Netflix on your smart TV and you're watching The Bachelor. And both of those things can be incredibly entertaining and can kind of light up different parts of your brain. Um, I, I do watch The Bachelor, although this season I am less interested in The Bachelor than I was last season. I got very into it last <laughs> season in a weird kind of like feminist way because I was very interested in the fact that on this incredibly moronic reality show where the very premise is itself absurd, which is like, I came here to find love 
is if I can just get past these other 30 people who are <laughs> and also in the cameras and the yeah. cameras. But, uh, but then there's this, there was this weird backlash last year where like the woman who was very straightforwardly to my eyes, doing the exact thing that every man and woman had done on that show forever since it was inception was suddenly being like called a whore basically. Yeah. And it drove me crazy. And I, I like watched the show and kind of got really into the show and was like rooting for her to tell everyone to go screw. So I got really into the show, and then this year I I watch it again, but I'm now I watch it for a completely different way, which is a kind of like stunned, like a con- confused, like I'm a bird that flew into a window is how I watch it now because the people on the show are so insane or so like like goofy that I'm watching it. I kind of watch it like the way that some people might watch like a horror movie. Like I watch it. My wife has started taking pictures of me and putting them on Instagram of like me hide, literally hiding under a blanket because I'm so scared. But the point is I watch it and I watch it and I'm interested in it as a form of entertainment. And that's not, that was not available to me when in, in 1975 or whatever, like this, this way that TV could make me feel was not available to me. And that doesn't mean, by the way, I'm not going to watch it anymore. It's it's awful. I can't take it. But the leftovers to bring this all the way back around to Damon to Damon as it as it always should. So that was by the way, it was a very classy and experienced showrunner move. You you put a bow on it. You, you brought <laughs> I did, yeah. But I the, the reason that I fell in love with the leftovers is as I think I said earlier, it was a show that made me feel a combination of things I have never felt before. And I, th- I feel like at some level, that's why anybody watches TV. There's a specific feeling that they want. Mm-hmm. There's a specific set of feelings, maybe in a row, that they want. I want to watch this show at 7. I want to watch this show at 8, this show at 9. Everybody has his or her own formula for what they want to get out of television. And the benefit of there being so much TV is whatever the lo- whatever the combination is of your personal safe that you want to crack open every night using television to help you, it is available to you. And by the way, it's available. It's also available to just like not ever watch it and shut it off. And yeah. so if you don't like it, you don't have to watch it. Any of it. Get some sleepies. You're turning and that geez, crank tomorrow geez. morning. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, now look who's, who brought it all the way around. I'm in the, the presence of a master. I had to. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, my only regret here is that I, I didn't make you cry, I guess. I mean, no, it, in fact, didn't really come close. No, I didn't push. No. In those ways we talked. Maybe it's less of a, maybe it's crying is less of the goal and, it's more it's more like confessional or or like a or I thought you spoke very expansively about this 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 business of show. Oh, that's and, good. Uh, you know, I I, I I I I don't mean to now I'm feeling my now I'm recapping and reviewing. You did our you did push a little bit about my feelings towards my specific employer. So maybe yeah. your goal should be to get someone fired. Get someone angry, get someone <laughs> fired. I want I just want action. I want change for change's sake. Throw out all the You bums. just want scalps. You I, want scalps to hang on your wall. That would be terrific. Um <laughs> No, no, but I, but uh, yeah, you you also maybe you also uh, hedge a little bit right off the bat because you said um, this isn't these aren't real problems, and so by saying they're not real problems, you allowed yourself not to become. You're too saying that was I was a that was a defense mechanism. Yeah. So maybe we should just consider this. This is just like round round one. I hope like okay, the, uh, and that next time. This is your opening gambit. Yeah. And now you're it, setting me up. You for, feel comfortable a little bit, right? I feel great. You, feel you, you would never do anything to hurt me, Andy. Never. I'm your friend. And we just talked about TV. And like, you know, I said the bad things and you were fine. Next time, I'm just like, 
and your parents right just immediately start with yeah what was that like that's when i realized that you haven't even been recording these it's just this is all a show this is all preamble (laughs) this is all my art project i'll i'll say this and then end that the one time the ultimate interviewer nightmare happened to me is when i was interviewing a band for spin magazine in, in 2003 and uh I sat with a band. I didn't have I had limited time in Chicago. I had one interview one night and one the next day. Sat down with them, interviewed them for an hour, went up to my hotel room, and the tape recorder hadn't worked. Oh. And that's the worst feeling in the world. What did like, you do? I freaked out, but then, you know, I had a little more time the next day. And then, as it turned out, everything that I needed anyway was the second day, because the first day, they didn't trust me, or they were feeling each other out. Oh. So it almost was like making the 10 episodes right. and throwing yeah, it away. Exactly so right. So when we sat back down, I knew who they were, I knew... So you never told them, like, sorry guys, it didn't record? No. Oh. No, because I'm also, I'm 26, and you don't want right. to be like... They're going to be like, funny story, idiot. guys. <laughs> and that's why The Used is the most popular and successful band of the 21st century. I Because once, of my... I do journalism. a fair, semi-regular podcast about sports and baseball with joe poznanski who writes yes. for works for nbc and and by the way i did notice you mentioned bill belichick in and <laughs> ben zobrist early on i'm used to it anytime there's i'm talking to a microphone i talk about sports usually but uh the like i would say five out of the first 11 times we did it his his machine just didn't record <laughs> i mean it was it was like a it was like a parody yeah. of incompetence but those were his own words yes. um and and we so now we've been doing it for like on and off for like four or five years now some a very long amount of time and then after the last time he did it he was like some, there was some technical problem we had to stop and start again he was like hey i should find someone to produce this for me and i was like hey that's a really good idea <laughs> five years after the first time <laughs> yeah so maybe he didn't learn the lesson right away but you yeah. got there we uh, eventually we got there it's a process <laughs> All right, we, we will end there. Mike, I really thank you for talking to me. I really would like to make you weep at some point in the future. I, it'll happen. Have me back enough and start asking me about my kids and then you're gold. For, for, for Channel 33's upcoming parenting podcast, there you'll you go. first person on the list. <laughs> um, but maybe when Good Place premieres on NBC uh, yes. in fall 2016. Yes, when you actually know what it's about and we can talk about it uh, then, more then, specifically. Then I hope we can talk about it. Sounds good. But until then, uh, thanks. Thank you. <laughs>